Hello, welcome to the Social Market Foundation podcast, bringing you news, views and expertise from Britain's leading centrist think tank. I'm James Kirkup, director of the SMF, previously a political journalist at Westminster, where I spent my time talking to politicians, officials and other insiders about politics and policy. And now I'm going to talk to you about the same things in these podcasts. This podcast is part of our Ask the Expert series, in conjunction with the Economic and Social Research Council, where we bring publicly funded experts and academics to Westminster, where they can use their knowledge and expertise to enrich the policy-making conversation. Today's guest is Dr. Simonetta Longhi, Associate Professor at the Department of Economics at the University of Reading, and she's going to be talking to us today about ethnicity pay gap reporting. So, should we start with the the basics, I suppose? What do we know about the the ethnicity pay gap? What are the the facts and figures? So, we know that uh, ethnicity pay gap exists for most ethnicity, but actually not all of them. First of all, I think we need to specify what we mean with pay gap. This is really the difference in average pay between the majority and the ethnic minority that we want to look at. And we look at them as groups. And uh, in generally, when we want to look at pay gap, we don't take into account the fact that minorities have different types of characteristics, say different levels of education and so on. If you don't take any account of these characteristics that what we see is for Indian, for example, Indian men, we don't see any relevant pay gap. So on average, they're paid as much as white British men. While for most other ethnic minorities, you do find that they're paid less on average than the white British majority. And the groups that are paid the least are the Bangladeshi and the Pakistani. Uh, and again, we'll talk a little bit about gender pay reporting later on, but the gaps again are they're bigger for women than men as well, aren't they? They're actually bigger uh, among men than among women. So uh, if you look at ethnic pay gap among men, they're much larger than ethnic pay gap among women. So actually some ethnic minority women, if you look at the figures, just as I said, comparing all women, Mm. all ethnic minority women to all white British women, some ethnic minorities, women are paid more than the white British as a group on average. Are those Indian women or? You have to differentiate between those who are born in the UK and those who are born abroad. So if you look at, for example, Indian women who are born abroad, they're paid more or less the same as white British women. While the Indian women who are born in the UK, they're paid on average more than the white British women. So they have a pay advantage if you want. So complicated picture, different people, different experiences. But obviously in some cases, many cases, there are a lot of people who are paid less than their approximate white counterpart, which is where we, which is essentially, the, that, that's, the, that's the core of, of this issue. We obviously, obviously raise a question about causes. Simple question, well, why is that? There may be different causes, and uh, one of those most important ones is actually education for some mm. of the ethnic minorities, at least, the blacks, black Caribbean and the black African, who on average have lower level of education than uh, white British people. And this is taking into account both those who are born in the UK and those who are born abroad, so as a large group. But the most important reason seems to be occupation and the type of job that people end up doing. So most minorities, even despite sometimes their higher level of education, end up 
working in, say, elementary occupation or occupation that on average don't really pay that much. And that's why then as a group, they're paid less than white British people who are more likely to be, say, managers and work in highly paid occupation. So, that, so that, and the, you know, there's two distinct things there. There's, there's occupation and education, mm-hmm. and they don't necessarily they don't necessarily interact in a straightforward way, do they? Because obviously you, you might look at this and just say, well, it's simple. You end up in a job that matches your level of education. But I think as, you, as you've alluded to there, in some cases, we, there is a sort of, well, this is an issue across the economy, skills mismatch i suppose people, exactly, people often yeah. end up in jobs that correlate with their level of qualification but is that is that a, that a particular issue here for ethnic minority workers it depends on the type of ethnic minorities <laughs> <laughs> say if you look at indians most of most of them are actually in highly paid occupation professional occupations yes. and so on it, that's one of the reason why you don't really see pay gap for those groups and there are groups that do have relatively high level of education but they don't manage to get to the managerial role or the roles that are high pay and there might be different reasons for that really not being hired in those type of occupation or being hired at the bottom of those occupation and not being able to move upwards. So I guess that those sort of explanations for the different patterning of occupational distribution, they're things that we can't really we can't see the explanations in the data, can we? We can just we, we can just see that there are variations. And, and I should have said on the data here, a lot of what we're talking about here is their numbers coming from the, the Labour Force survey. The Labour Force survey. For that one, I think it was between 2000 and 2014, something like right. that. So that's that's a very yeah. large period. So there might, be, there might have been some shift in yeah. that period, but we can't really look at the shift because the numbers are not large yeah. enough. But essentially, that data tells us where people are working and how much they're being paid in, the, in the, that job. But it doesn't tell us very much about how, what, how they ended up in that job. Exactly. Yeah. So that's what research should focus on now, because yeah. we don't know if this is something that starts already from your first job. Yes. Or if it is something that is a problem of career progression. Yes. Yes, I think that's where a decent snapshot of uh, of where we are. I guess the part of the reason for having this conversation is because there is a view in politics that something should be done about this. It's uh, October twenty eighteen. The government uh, announced a consultation on the possibility of mandatory ethnicity pay gap reporting. The proposition is that uh, employers of some size should have to declare declare data on the on, on the service, so we can yeah, so we can judge how much people of different ethnicities are paid in the employment of a certain organisation. And the model for that is gender pay reporting, which has been in place for um, two two years now. Should we talk, talk a little bit around the issues involving possible ethnicity pay gap reporting? Because one of the things that really comes across looking at your research and looking at those figures on the really broad variation between ethnic groups, bluntly, when you look at those figures, you don't tend to think that ethnicity as a broad category is very useful. Is very useful statistically speaking. So. Overall, if you look at the data, you might think that this idea of ethnicity as one single category is not very useful for pay gap reporting because that category contains such a wide variation. If you you look at those figures, as you say, British Indian women get paid more than their uh, their white British counterparts, and yet uh, Bangladeshi men, say, are being paid something like 35% less than their white British counterparts, and yet we are yeah, we're having a conversation where uh, that groups all of these different subgroups into one category. So, is a a broad ethnicity approach to to this problem is that adequate? Do you think? I agree because there are because there are such large differences across group. Then, in principle, it doesn't really make sense to talk about an ethnic pay gap as 
if we think of ethnicity as one single group, mm. in principle, it would be ideal to really separate each type of ethnicity and see whether within the employer, um, Pakistanis still are paid less than white British, while Indians are not paid less yep. and so on. The problem is that of numbers, because mm. minorities are few, are minorities, so uh, you might not have enough people actually to compute a meaningful pay gap for, say, Pakistani if you don't have enough in your firm. So ideally, we would like to, to separate them all, yeah. but it might not be possible, at least not for all employers. And there would always be some group that you can't really separate, say, Chinese from people of mixed background and so yeah. on. So you will always have some residual ethnicity that you can't really say much about. But ideally, if you have some group that you can separate, I think it would be yes. good. And, and how much do we know about the the employment patterns of ethnic minority workers in terms of, I mean, one thing I think that comes out, London is a very important place for, for ethnic minority employment, and therefore that, that has some effects on, on the wage numbers, doesn't it? Yes, because as, as different type of groups, most minorities actually do live and work in London, and we know that wages are higher in London than the rest of the countries, you also have to take into account that costs are mm. higher in London too. Yeah. But if you just want to compare, say, wages of minorities with my, with the majority, and most minorities do live in London when they receive higher wages, you might actually end up with a figure which is lower than what you should really have, because you compare the white British people who are in low pay area, if you want, with the minority who are in high pay areas. So that should be taken into account. So possibly if you want to report the pay gap, you might want to separate London yep. versus the rest of the country. Okay. So so if, if the government is going to go down the line of, of pay reporting, we're, we're suggesting that the report is going to be quite a complicated one here. You, you, yes, you, you, extremely. <laughs> yeah, it's, you, the, the idea that, that this policy regime could produce simple numbers and clear figures is probably a bit optimistic. Yes. Another question on the again, we're 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 speculating a little bit on what what a what a new policy regime could look like. It's informed speculation, I suppose, because the model is is gender pay reporting. Now, gender pay reporting as an employer, you have to report your your gender pay gap if you employ more than two hundred and fifty people, and you have to report the difference between the between the average salary of your female employees and you know, the average salary of your male employees. A couple of questions arise from that if you apply to the ethnicity question. The first question is that 250 employee threshold. How much do we know about where ethnic minority workers work in in the labour market? Are they particularly skewed towards small employers who would fall below that 250 employee threshold? Yes, they're likely to be more concentrated in smaller employer. And this will also probably depend on the type of minorities <laughs> and again, the type of occupation that they end up yes. working in. So, so I mean, if we just focus on larger employer, we risk missing a larger proportion of minorities. But on the other hand, you really can't ask a smaller employer to report the pay gap if they have, say, 10 employers yes. and one of them is a minority. Yes, so. because, it, yeah, A, there's a regulatory burden, but also just it, it would be a failing, it would be a meaningless figure. Exactly, yes. Um, and the other methodological question, I suppose, is there are some people who say that the the average, the mean that's used for some of the, some of this measurement, that's not the best statistical measure of difference and divergence. What do you think about mean, mode, median? Yes, I agree. So, so the problem with the mean, 
well, the easiest thing with the mean is that it's easy to compute. And also it has been used a lot in terms of research because it makes our life easier. Making life easier for social scientists is very important. But for, for reporting, possibly the mean is not the ideal thing because it is likely to be very affected by small changes in the workers that you have, in which occupation your workers are. Okay, so say if you're on university and your vice chancellor quit uh, is a man and uh, the university decides to appoint, say, a woman, for example, then clearly this woman will have a very high wage. And if you compute the average pay gap, in that case, it's going to become from one year to the other very small, not because you have improved as an employer, but just because you just have hired a woman and in the top job who has the top wage. So the problem with the mean is that it, a shift in the mean doesn't really tell us that something has improved for the employer. Makes yes, it, it does. So what's yes, absolutely. Uh, I'm going back to my undergraduate statistics lectures as we speak. What's better than the mean? Yes, the, the median would be probably much better because the way you compute the median, you essentially you rank all your male employer from the least pay to the highest pay one, mm. and then you do the same for the female. You pick the person in the middle. The person which is in the middle, the man in the middle and the woman in the middle, and you compare the wage of these two. So if you all of a sudden pay your highest paid women much more than before, for the median is not going to change, while the mean would change a lot. Yes. So, obviously, I, I, I mentioned um, I mentioned gen- gender pay reporting. To recap: the government has is technically still consulting on this measure. It was you know, the consultation was announced in October. It's quite a long time for a consultation, but as we know, Brexit is not necessarily accelerating decision making in government at the moment. They're asking you a terrible, terribly simple question: What do you think the government should do on this issue? What's, what, 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 would, what would a good policy regime look like on ethnicity pay gaps? I think, in principle, the the idea of reporting either a pay gap or some measure of differences between minority and majority at the employer level is a good idea. But what we want to avoid is just to have a number which is itself not very meaningful and that, say, journalists might use to compare different types of employer. <laughs> at which point I have to declare an interest and say I, I, I was a journalist for a very long time. I still am sometimes. And yeah, funnily enough, I think the media, the media aspect is very important because obviously part of the theory behind gender pay gap reporting, and you know, the interesting thing about the gender pay gap reporting, there's no there's no sanction. The requirement is the onus is on a company or an employer to report the numbers, but then if you've got a really well, for want of better terms, a really bad number, there's not the government doesn't do anything. If you've got a really good number. The government doesn't do anything. The theory is social pressure, norms, it will compel behaviour. And obviously the media is a very important part of that because yeah, the other point is that you're forced to report these numbers, which, which they get reported more widely. And so the, the fact that lots of people know what your number is, is supposed to compel you to, to behave in a certain way. It's a good theory, but it sounds like from some of the things we're, we're talking about, there is a real risk that bluntly, if you do this wrong if you end up with the wrong sort of reporting regime and employers end up reporting numbers that aren't aren't wholly accurate or useful, presumably the behaviour change that follows from that, possibly by way of reporting that may or may not be perfect, uh, shockingly journalism sometimes does make mistakes, could be, you, we, could change, we could change behaviour in the wrong way. Is that is that a reasonable, reasonable concern? Yes, yes, that it, it is. Really what ideally we want to see out of the ethnicity pay gap reporting is employers starting to think about 
their employees and their workforce where the minorities are concentrated within their type of jobs and then start thinking about how to improve equality across the different groups. So mm. it is useful to, st to start with a number, but really what you want is a, like a narrative description of the employer, why yeah. minorities are in certain positions rather than in others. Uh, is it a problem of hiring? Is it a problem of career progression? And then what we can do about it. So, so, so the num obviously the numbers are numbers are valuable, but they need to be put in proper context. Some words, so numbers, yes, numbers they, and words, please. They should be the starting point. Yeah, and it's uh, I mean obviously this is all I mean this is relatively novel, I suppose, or certainly novel for the UK. The, the gender pay experiment, if you if you want, has been underway for you know, not very long. Ethnicity pay gap reporting is just still under discussion. Is this? This is not a purely uniquely British issue. Are there, are there other countries who approach this issue in a different or more useful way, do you think? No, as far as I know, there's no country that has a mandatory reporting of ethnic pay gap. And I think in principle that is a good starting point, mm. but it should help us start understanding what is going on. And yeah. that's really, I think, the main reason why we should do the reporting. I don't think the reporting itself, the number itself will create equality is that the, em the employer need to work yeah. to create the equality within their workforce. But uh, I suppose to agree, the fact that this is so new, that there, is, that there isn't a country that's, already, that's doing this well already, I, I suppose that would incline you to be a little bit more understanding of the fact that if, if the British government is trying to do this and basically is making some mistakes on the way, that maybe is understandable because we we don't we haven't anywhere established a template for how to do this stuff properly. So we're all we, we're all to sound terribly new age. We're on a journey here, aren't we? I agree. Yeah, yeah. We have to start somewhere. So you know, start reporting is good, but then as time progresses, we sh we should try to understand what is good and what is bad about the way we do the reporting, and then improve over time. It should be like a work in progress that probably might take a few years before finding yes. a solution. Here. And on the point about the media and public understanding, obviously you're you're not interested in trying to produce simple numbers that are misunderstood. I guess the, yeah, the takeaway from that would be, if you're going to do this, if you're a minister of whatever whatever political persuasion, any politician wanting to do this, put this sort of reporting regime in place for ethnicity pay, be prepared to do a lot more than just put the rules in place to require the employers to report the numbers. You're going to have to have a continuing conversation with the public, with employers, to try and really raise the understanding of the context of those numbers. Yes, exactly. And it's also unlikely that the change will be very quick. It, yeah. We probably will need a few years before seeing a change, even if the employer do all that they need to do to improve equality. It's going to take time. Yes, because obviously that, I mean, that's... Yeah, the, 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 the nature of these statistics is such that, in all probability, if they were to be put in place, you would see, yeah, one, a company would produce a, a gap of 20%. In ideal world, start putting in place policies to, to address that. And the following year, you might well see a gap of 19%, 18%. And the risk would, of course, be that people would say, well, aha, it's not working. We're not seeing change. Whereas actually, in, you know, it's a turning around the old, the old tanker problem, isn't it? Exactly. And also, you might want, you may also see at the beginning an increase in the, in the wage gap just because you're hiring more minorities, for example. And if you're hiring them at the bottom... <laughs> then you might see that. Yes, yes. I mean, we haven't yet seen, because obviously there are some anecdotal reports of the effect of gender pay reporting. I mean, there are some reports suggesting that there have been some sort of perverse results of that policy, aren't there, in terms of, of hiring decisions and among big employers? Yes, for example, you know, hiring fewer 
women at the bottom in the, in the occupations yeah. that pay little and hiring fewer men in the occupations that pay a lot. So it, it would be just an accounting exercise. Really what you want to see is why there is, say, this occupational segregation. Yes, yes. And coming back to that, that crucial point about edu- education and occupation, that, as you say, you can easily imagine a scenario where the employer response to a reporting regime was to say, right, we need, we're not doing very well at this. We need to hire more, more minority ethnic workers. Okay, fine. Let's look at their skill level, their edu- education level of our potential recruiting pool. Well, actually, by definition, we're going to have to hire people into entry-level positions because yeah, we can't find enough I think minority candidates at higher grades. So I, I, as an employer, I respond to, to this reporting regime by bringing in more people at the, at the bottom of my company. And the result is actually a potentially higher, higher ethnicity pay gap. Yes, exactly. So we shouldn't really be focusing on year-on-year changing or short-term changes mm. because essentially they're not very useful. What we want to see is, is there, a, is there a positive change within a five-year period, for example? And has the employer put into place policies that yeah. would help to decrease this gap, this gap in a meaningful way? And have this policy been effective yeah. or not? So that's really what, where you want to go. So takeaways from the conversation, your, your study would be a, a proper ethnicity pay gap reporting regime would be one that produces lots of numbers, not just a single number. It would be one that would put employers un- under obligation to produce some words to go alongside the numbers, a sort of narrative account of their policies and, mm-hmm. their, and their actions. It would be one where the public and the politicians would be encouraged to take a longer term view over, you know, over, over five and ten years, not year on year, not snapshot, not shouty headlines. So that's, they're three yeah, fairly useful takeaways for anybody trying to think about this policy. All, all we need now is a, uh, is a functioning government that's not, uh, that's not consumed by Brexit to actually take action, uh, put some policy in place. Good. I think that, that that's that issue solved. Um, <laughs> unless, uh, unless we've missed anything else. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, I think it's um, Great. Well, in that case, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all from us. This has been a Social Market Foundation podcast in conjunction with the Economic and Social Research Council. And our guest has been Dr. Simoneke Longhi, Associate Professor at the Department of Economics at the University of Reading. Thank you very much for joining us. We hope you can do it again sometime. Bye-bye. <laughs>